Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. My friend likes to call that they're overly caffeinated because their wings flick so much <laughs> while they're on flowers. So if you have some soil maps or you know your local park is sandy, sandy loam, loamy sand type soil, you're going to find a, a really large diversity of various ground nesting species in that situation. You know, you spend a lot of time on the ground weeding and immersed in plants. And being in the native landscape, I was like, just astounded. Like, what is this weird looking beetle and these amazing bees? And Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... That's really when I started to discover really interesting things going on in my yard was just sitting quietly on my steps that sort of go through a garden planting. And there I discovered a bee going down a, a cut-off plant stem many years ago and had a light bulb moment. And that's where I see a spider wasp dragging a spider across the ground. So you really do need to be kind of in one place. There's a lot happening if you pause to have a look at a garden full of blooming native plants. And it's at all levels. The bare soil, mid-sized herbs like black-eyed Susans, all the way up to any nearby trees. Much of the action consists of various insects seeking pollen and nectar, the floral resources they so depend on for themselves and their offspring. Heather Holm is a biologist, pollinator conservationist, and award-winning author, and she spends a lot of time in her own garden, observing and photographing pollinators. She joined Ian to discuss the lives of pollinating bees and wasps, tips for observing these fascinating insects, and which resources are most useful for educators and citizen scientists. So in 2017, you published the book Bees, an Identification and Native Plant Forage Guide. And at the beginning of that book, you cite some rather staggering numbers about bee diversity. So just a quick rundown, approximately 20,000 species worldwide, 3,500 in the United States, 725 in Canada. That's a lot of bees. That is, yeah. I think most people are probably not aware of that level of diversity. They're likely acquainted with honeybees, most likely bumblebees as well. But what other common and readily observable species are flying out there? I think you're you're exactly right. Ask someone on the street, how many bees can you name, right? And they may be able to say honeybee, bumblebee, and perhaps one other bee. But that's what makes being 
pollinator conservationist so fun? It's to really engage with people and say, no, wait, there are all these other kinds of bees. You just have to start looking. So some examples would be sweat bees, which is really its own family that includes many different genera. Some are these beautiful emerald metallic green bees of varying sizes. And then we have a number of solitary ground nesting bees, often called mining bees because they dig to, to make their nests. So some examples include the genus Andrina, one of my favorites. They're pretty abundant in the spring, doing a lot of pollination of some of those early woodland wildflowers and you know some of the first shrubs to bloom. You'll find a wide variety of species that belong to that genus. And then there's a whole group in the leafcutter bee family, mason bees, leafcutter bees. They're equally as interesting. The, the females collect pollen on the bottom of their abdomens instead of on their hind legs. So sometimes they look like they have bright yellow bee butts <laughs> because all of that pollen that's adhering to hairs on the underside of their abdomen. So that's just a sampling, but we can obviously talk about many more in detail. Mason bees, I think, are interesting because more and more people I'm starting to see, at least in naturalist and conservation circles, are trying to attract them in various ways with bee houses or even just sort of fashioning their own little tubules where these bees can nest. I know you mentioned in, I forget exactly which book it was, it might have been the 2017 book, that there's kind of a right and a wrong way to go about creating those habitats. What are some of the best and not so good practices in that regard? Yeah, there's been real popularity with creating these human-made supplemental nests, which can attract a number of cavity nesting native bees, in addition to some types of wasps that like to nest in cavities. Sometimes those are poorly designed. I generally just don't recommend people use those. So to answer your question, Ian, <laughs> there are a number of sort of natural ways to provide nesting opportunities. Many bees like to nest in holes in wood. So that can mean old beetle holes in standing dead trees or even a log lying on the ground. And then some of the smaller cavity nesting bees really like hollow or pith-filled plant stems, or sometimes softwood shrubs, elderberry, sumac. Those are really attractive places for a lot of these cavity nesting bees to nest. So if you can incorporate those three things, or two out of the three, you're really providing good natural situations rather than densely packed bee houses that, you know, have a ton of tubes close together. And switching to mining bees, I know you mentioned in the book that bare ground can be really helpful and there is a tendency to just want to cover every space of bare ground with plants or grass, whatever it may be. What recommendation would you have in terms of keeping that bare ground open for mining bees and the other species that dig underground? Right. So uh, uh, there are some species that are have very specific nesting needs if they're ground nesters. So to, to answer that question, some really like almost completely bare ground and, for example, really sandy. So you're going to attract a, lot, a really wide diversity of both solitary and bees and wasps in this kind of loose sand situation, but most people don't have that <laughs> unique thing going on in their residential yard. So residential yards are going to attract 
ground nesting species, but that don't necessarily always need that completely bare ground. If it's patchy or if you have natural materials such as leaf litter, that still doesn't impede ground nesting bees from able to, you know, get under the material and then and excavate their nest below ground. So I would say most people listening likely have several species of ground nesting bees nesting within their yard, but maybe they just don't see them because it's they're not as visible if you have a, you know, a really bare area. So Yeah, the holes from my observations at least, the holes are very small. And if you know what to look for, you can certainly find them, but they're not as nearly as big as something like a chipmunk hole that is relatively common, at least in this part of the world. Right. And chipmunk burrows are attractive for bumblebees. Yeah, so, yeah, for you sure. know, a lot of the queens will investigate abandoned chipmunk burrows as a place to establish a nest in spring. So if you can keep those holes open, you might get some queen bumblebees taking up residence in those. Touching on diet of the various bee species, and I mean, of course, we can't talk about the 3,500 species in the United States and each of their diets, but sort of generally speaking, what are bees going after? Because it's maybe not so simple as the layperson might understand. Yeah, there's uh, so many factors that would influence an individual species diet. So 90% of native bees approximately are solitary, meaning a single female bee is actively establishing that nest either in the ground or in an above ground cavity. Now her lifespan is very short, four to six weeks. And so each individual species out of the thousands that occur in North America have what I call a window of time in the growing season. So those mining bees I mentioned that are prevalent in the spring the females will come out of the ground, say, at May 1st, and then they're busy establishing a nest and doing their egg laying and provisioning that nest over the next four to five weeks. Other bee species are only active in July, and similarly, some are just active in September. So that alone is going to influence the plants they visit. They're only going to be visiting the plants that are, you know, co-flowering or matching when they are actually active. So that limits their diet. The other really big thing for native bees is their their physical size and then also things such as their tongue length. So, you know, flowers that are really complex have hard to reach nectaries or really difficult ways the bee would have to employ to, to extract the pollen from those flowers. That already starts to limit the types of bees that could access a, a complex flower farm. So it gets tricky and complex, I would say just based on the bee seasonality, whether it can, you know, access the flower, whether the flower is blooming while they're active. So in general, most bees, even if they aren't a pollen specialist, have, a, you know, a fairly, fairly narrow diet. And I guess that speaks to the importance of having a variety of blooming flowers at all times in the growing season, which as gardening gurus know, doesn't just sort of happen by accident. It really has to be intentional and requires very careful planning. Now, fortunately, you have provided templates, particularly in your first book, Pollinators of Native Plants, where you have very specific templates. There's like a leaf cutter bee garden, for example, that says this is what you need to put in and how many of each species and where in the garden plot. And I've certainly, and I'm sure many people 
would agree have used those very directly as templates for my own garden. So thank you for those. <laughs> oh yeah. I like to call it the having the the flower restaurant open 24 seven, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and then as you said, it takes a lot of planning. If you're thinking about that season-long phenology of flowering plants, preferably mostly native if possible, and then the variety of flower colors, flower shapes, seasonality of the plant bloom, and how that relates to maybe the pollinators that you're documenting in your garden. So yeah, keeping a notebook is is super helpful. The The other sort of twist on that planning process is, of course, our changing climate. <laughs> so yes. I've had two-thirds of an acre yard chock full of plants, but in the last couple of years, I've had periods of a week or two where I don't have anything in bloom when I normally would have, you know, five, ten years ago. So it, it's constant monitoring and making sure that you're adding some additional plant species to keep that flower restaurant open. Yeah, that's a great image. Flower restaurant open 24-7. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, the garden is the buffet, right? <laughs> exactly. A floral buffet. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. A gently sloping patch of bare soil seems rather unremarkable until you notice the small holes that were probably made by mining bees. You look into the holes to see if anyone's home. One of your most recent books is the <laughs> massive 2021 publication Wasps, a guide for Eastern North America. And just to give folks some context, this is, I would say, like classic textbook size. <laughs> and yet it's only the pollinating wasps and doesn't touch on thousands of other species, which is in no way a, a criticism of the book. I mean, the book is absolutely amazing. The photos alone worth the price of admission. But again, it just speaks to the ridiculous diversity. And we're in the temperate zone. I mean, we're not even talking about the tropics, which of course is a whole other kettle of fish. But how does wasp diversity compare with that of bees? Well, yeah, that's a great point. And you can see why I focused on flower-associated wasps for that book, because yeah. what a great segue, right, for people that are interested in pollinators and maybe could tolerate some, some wasps coming to some of their flowering plants, given that most people think wasps are terrible and they don't like them. Yeah. But back to wasp diversity, thankfully, a, a lot a lot more graduate students are beginning to study wasps. And I heard most recently that the order Hymenoptera, which bees and wasps belong to, is now more diverse than the beetle order, Coleoptera. So the numbers are ratcheting up on overall wasp and bee diversity. So that's pretty exciting. So is that worldwide then? Hymenoptera has now exceeded Coleoptera, the beetles? 
That is my understanding. Oh, wow. Yep. That, this is like a watershed moment. I mean, just for years, like all my time doing nature walks with provincial parks, it was just always like, all right, this is the beetle order and it's the biggest in the world. Now, Diptera is the largest order in Canada. Like those were just insect 101 facts that we would always throw out. So I guess we have to rewrite the, the manual, so to speak. Right. And I think the large number of undescribed wasp species that it belong to that parasitica group, the parasitic wasps, yeah. are really probably what is ratcheting up that number very quickly that, again, more grad students are focusing on taxonomy work and trying to figure out what these undescribed species may be and where they belong. <laughs> so, And is one of the reasons why so many are undescribed is that just a huge number of them are tiny? Tiny and very difficult is my understanding to, to identify. Uh -huh. So, and, you know, certain family or tribe really just hasn't had much attention or it doesn't even perhaps have a taxonomic key to work with. So uh, a lot of work still needs to be done, I think, to, and then, of course, you add on DNA work. <laughs> so that really yeah. tends to mix things up and blow up uh, former assumptions. So I'm I'm sitting on the sidelines just waiting for it all to play out and then <laughs> see where the dust settles. Yeah, then write a new book. <laughs> right. So I guess this question maybe is a TBD, but at the moment, based on what we know, what is sort of the working definition of a wasp? Right. So the wasps belong to that order, Hymenoptera, which also includes ants and bees, other commonly recognizable insects. So wasps are basically not ants or not bees. They have a constricted waist, and then they also have a sting. We can talk about why they have a sting and why it's important, <laughs> not just for stinging humans and mammals, but it's a very important evolutionary structure, of course, for them for prey capture and for other things. So we can maybe segue into that later, but that is what a wasp is. No better time than the present, as they say. Let's segue into that now. The use of that stinger is a huge part of what makes a wasp a wasp and how predatory they are. So what are some of the particulars of that? Right. So the order breaks down into what is called the stinging wasp, the aculeata. And they have this modified ovipositor, which is now just a sting. And as you said, they are, for the most part, predatory. The females are actively hunting some kind of insect or uh, less often a, a type of spider. And so they use that sting to inject venom into their prey. And the venom is really what causes usually permanent paralysis of the prey. So the prey is still alive, but now it's immobile and very easy for the female wasp to either transport across the ground if the, the prey is really big, or if the prey is maybe of the similar size to the female wasp or smaller, she'll fly and carry it cut clutched underneath her. So then she stuffs it inside a prepared nest cell, either in a cavity or in the ground, and lays an egg on it. And so this prey has been injected with venom, uh, remains alive for a week or more, just enough time for the wasp larvae to consume this either single or perhaps pile of specific prey that the mother has provided them in the nest cell. And you have some 
absolutely, I mean, they're grotesque, but beautiful at the same time. The photos <laughs> of inside these nesting cells with the larva, with the eggs, with the prey, like how just thinking of the logistics of getting in there. I mean, you must have an excellent camera. How were you able to get such just perfectly illustrated photos of those things? Yeah. So for in preparation for the book, I made some of what are called trap nests. So they are kind of like a supplemental nest, but you router out grooves in a board and then you're able to open them without damaging the nest structure. So that's what I did just to, in anticipation of trying to illustrate what's happening inside of the nest and also the, the various types of prey that these these predatory wasps feed on. So some nest cells were stuffed full of types of moth caterpillars and then the next nest cell was stuffed with spiders. <laughs> so it really showcases and illustrates the, the variety of prey an individual species may may hunt. Yeah, I mean, the pictures are just so cool. And it's neat because, like, I take spider wasps, for example, and they're pretty active on the mountain mint in our garden. And I like spider wasps because they're mostly metallic, very shiny, iridescent. They're flicking their wings. So from a nature interpreter standpoint, that's always something that you can very readily point out. You know, watch the behavior. Yet seeing your photos of spiders bundled together and stuffed in, in these nests really kind of drives home what they're actually doing, which is something that's harder to observe. I mean, you can certainly observe it, but my experience with spider wasps, at least doing nature walks for the most part, is just pointing out the flicking wings. But when you see those pictures of the spiders, it's like, wow, they really are <laughs> going to town on the arachnids. Right. My friend likes to call that they're overly caffeinated because their wings flick so much <laughs> while they're on flowers. Some of the species wasps are also like that. They're, you know, constantly twitching their wings, even though they're busy sipping on nectar while they visit flowers. Yeah, that's a lot of energy expenditure, but I guess they're able to make it work. Right. In terms of wasps' impact as pollinators, it's probably fair to say that they maybe fly a bit under the radar compared with bees, butterflies, hummingbirds, you know, the more gaudy, familiar species. But how important from a scientific perspective are wasps to pollinators or to flowering plants, I should say, to pollination in that general process? Right. So, you know, in North America, it's sort of poorly documented, I would say. You know, it, you can't find too many studies that have actually quantified that a wasp is pollinating, you know, successfully moving pollen from one flower to the next of the same species. But given that most adults are seeking out carbohydrate-rich substances that can include flower nectar, so these species that frequently visit flowers for flower nectar, they may also be consuming a little bit of pollen. So they have the potential to, to move pollen around from flower to flower. The, the tricky part is, is quantifying that. <laughs> so I'm, I, I can say that, yes, they probably pollinate, but how well or how often, I, I really don't know. But they often get overlooked, as you said, Ian. You know, these are sort of more charismatic species that we maybe love more, <laughs> that visit flowers we think of as pollinators more so than a wasp, so. So it's another TBD. <laughs> TBD. I think maybe hopefully that's the next focus of some grad student research is 
is looking at their effectiveness of, of pollinating certain plants. But as you mentioned, you see a lot of wasps on your mountain mint. There are really specific plants that wasps seems to be more attracted to. There's also some flowering plants that have this structure that is a really set up for wasp pollination. One plant that I can think of is Monarda punctata. Yep. It's a type of bergamot. And it's not your typical bee balm shaped flower. These are small flowers with the similar mint kind of hood with the anthers and stamens hanging out underneath that top hood. So when a wasp sticks her head in or a male sticks their head into the flower opening, they get uh, just a whole bunch of pollen dumped on the back of their thorax. And that's what the receptive stigma on, you know, the female flower waiting to receive pollen uh, is also up in that hood. And so I, I would have to think that wasps are pretty good at pollen transfer on that plant. But someone needs to quantify that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, anyone who gets to spend more time with Monarda is a very lucky person. Mm-hmm. It's an endless fascination. I, I call that the one of the lawn chair plants. You know, you oh, can yeah. just sit out in front of it and <laughs> really see a wide variety of pollinators. Yeah, they're the best. Hey, it's Ian. You might already know about our book, Teaching About Invasive Species. For those who don't, it's a collection of perspectives, programs, and hands-on activities geared toward outdoor and environmental educators. Visit greenteacher.com to order your copy. All of these halls appear to be empty at the moment, which is no surprise on this sunny day when so many species are out visiting flowers. Your mountain mints sure are busy with spider wasps and bumblebees. So moving on to observation tips, we've touched on this a bit, looking for holes in bare ground and obviously different species of flowers attract the species that are particular to those flower species, but what are some maybe lesser known places to observe bees and pollinating wasps? Yeah, I would start with any sites that are sandy. Those are usually hot spots. So very well-drained soil. So if you have some soil maps or you know your local park is sandy, sandy loam, loamy sand type soil, you're going to find a, a really large diversity of various ground nesting species in that situation. So where I live, I have a couple of go-to parks that I know that are very sandy and in some places have just open sandy patches, even just from foot traffic of people walking in the park. And I find an extraordinary number of species nesting there. The other thing to think about with any type of pollinator observation is to slow down. <laughs> you don't, you can't walk your normal pace that you may do while walking at a park. You, you know, you really have to slow down, stand in one place, look at flowers. Similarly, if you're looking for, you know, those, those species that are nesting in a log lying on the ground, you really have to stand there and wait and look. And that's when you will see something. That's really what, when I started to discover really interesting things going on in my yard was just sitting quietly on my steps that sort of go through a garden planting. And there I discovered a bee going down a, a cut off plant stem many years ago and had a light bulb moment. And that's where I see 
a spider wasp dragging a spider across the ground. So you really do need to be kind of in one place and just wait. And then you'll start to see, see things going on. And do you carry an insect net? I mean, I guess one of the advantages compared with other animals is that a lot of pollinators do stay put at least when they are pollinating, when they're collecting pollen and nectar. So it makes it easier to get photographs, which can help with identification. But people who are used to observing things like butterflies and dragonflies often carry a net. So is that just sort of part of your repertoire or do you go netless? Yeah, I, you know, I've kind of transitioned into just doing photographic surveys. You know, when I helped with research projects, we would obviously carry nets and net stuff and collect for that specific project, but I've got too many things to carry now. <laughs> so yeah. I usually have one or two cameras and my cell phone in my back pocket. And so I can't handle a net as well, but I get a lot out of just doing those photographic forays now. And, and I've also set up a, a nice protocol for certain sites that a timed survey doing a walkthrough and a photographic survey. So it's not perfect because with a lot of these bees and wasps, you cannot identify them to species by a photograph, but at least it captures some information for, I do that on a volunteer basis for certain projects. So Nice. Can you usually get down to genus at least with the photographs? Yes. Yes. You can yeah. get down to genus, sometimes species. So yeah. Well, that's progress. Are there any other tools? I mean, I'm just thinking about educators who are like, well, I want to take my students out or if they're at an outdoor ed center or a park, are there any other tools of the trade that you would recommend? Oh my goodness. I would recommend a couple of apps. So iNaturalist would be my top pick. Yep. <laughs> that is a great educator tool. You can load it on their phone or their tablet or and you can send a group out, they can photograph what they see, and then it's that learning process once you start to upload them and have experts on that platform help you identify what you're seeing. So that is probably my top pick for technological tool that engages people with nature. And so it's not just pollinators, it's it's everything, right? Plants, any living organism. If you want just a pollinator-related platform, Bumblebee Watch, so that's a great way to help document bumblebee populations. And generally, when people are doing photographic surveys of pollinators or bees, they tend to photograph more big bees because they're more visible and observable. Sure. So that is a nice place to start with beginners because Bumblebees are easy to see and spot because of their size. And that's been a really valuable platform for researchers to track changes of, you know, species ranges and abundance over time. So a great way to, as a citizen scientist to contribute. Speaking of bumblebees, you're undoubtedly aware of the fact that a rusty patch bumblebee has not been confirmed sighted in Ontario for a very long, long time. But Minnesota, I do believe, has certain pockets where rusty patch bumblebees can still be found. Have you actually seen this, you know, for me now, mythical species? <laughs> yep. Rusty patch bumblebees are pretty common where I live. Mm. I've been documenting them even in my own yard for the last 14 years, I think. So 
I, I uh, actually, there's other species that I never see that I would love to see on a more frequent basis. But yeah, so it's both, it's listed as federally endangered in both in Canada and here in the U.S. And as you said, Ian, there's a, a pocket where I live in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area, Chicago area, and then parts of Wisconsin is really the last stronghold for that particular species. But yes, it disappeared rather rapidly in yeah. Ontario. Uh, Sheila Cola was the researcher that was documenting its decline in Ontario. So you'll have to come to Minnesota. I'll show you a rusty patch. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, just one of those, I guess you'd call it a bucket list species. And I'm not too driven by lists, but the rusty patch bumblebee has certain, certainly taken on a sort of iconic status, given the fact that it's now been extirpated from where I live. Right, right. Well, they have a good population now in West Virginia and parts of Virginia, I believe. So that's encouraging that uh, it's an isolated population, but at least it's a newly rediscovered population that was sort of outside of that Midwestern stronghold. So, Yeah, that's really encouraging. Another possible trip down the road. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like Busy Bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. Your black-eyed Susans are less busy than the mountain mints, but there are some small bees hovering around them. One with noticeable pollen sacs drops and then disappears into one of the holes. So in the episode with Lorraine Johnson, we asked her to share a meaningful pollinator story. So I will ask the same question to you. Sure. I really became interested in pollinators working in native landscapes and but at the time sort of straddling the worlds of traditional horticulture doing some landscape design and and garden management of those traditional landscapes that were planted with mostly non-natives and then working in mostly all native landscapes and seeing the really staggering difference in insect diversity. You know, you spend a lot of time on the ground weeding and immersed in plants. And being in the native landscape, I was like, just astounded. Like, what is this weird looking beetle and these amazing (laughs) bees? And 
So that's that's part of my pollinator story. But a specific one is when we moved to our house here about 20 years ago. We've got really big oak trees in our yard, which is one of the reasons we bought our house. And the next spring came around and up came uh, bloodroot flowers. We had this hillside that was covered in bloodroot flowers. And I went out excited to, to photograph the plants. And that's when I started to see all these bees flying around this patch of flowering bloodroot, but they were not landing on the flowers. And I was so confused. I said, said to myself, why are these bees not landing on the bloodroot flowers? Well, you know, fast forward, I, I learned that they were male mining bees and male mining bees. First of all, bloodroot flowers are nectarless. So males are usually looking for flower nectar versus flower pollen. And what they were doing is they were patrolling the flowers, waiting for a female mining bee to come to the flower. So that was this behavior that I witnessed that I really had to do some digging to understand what was going on. Oh, I love that. And personal connection because bloodroot also grows here in the spring in the hardwood forest. So definitely something to look out for. And bloodroot is a pretty inviting looking flower, despite the fact that, as you say, it is nectarless. I mean, the flowers are big, bold, bright white. Right. So, yep. And dish shaped. So, yep. yeah, yeah. And, uh, but short lived, but that's an example of a flowering plant that really isn't competing for <laughs> with other flowering plants for the attention of insects. So, right. everybody and everything goes to the blood root, whether it's offering nectar or not. So, <laughs> Oh, that's so neat. You've obviously written a tremendous amount about pollinators, yet, as we talked about earlier, have really only scratched the surface, which is just a testament to the diversity of insects. So I really hope the answer to this next question is yes. I'm going to kind of geek out as a fanboy here, but are <laughs> any other books in the pipeline? <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. I. So my last book was a little guide that came out last year, sort of at the end of what we call maybe the end of COVID. Um, Right now, I'm working with another author on a fun guide that is going to feature another type of group of insects that are associated with flowers. So that hopefully will be coming out at the end of the year. I'm not authoring it. And then I'm sort of taking a little bit of a break, but usually I spend push out a book every three or four years. So stay tuned. (laughs) Well, there's certainly lots of options. I mean, flower flies, beetles, even just within the fly and beetle orders, there are so many different possibilities. I mean, you could do a longhorn beetle book. I I think we're about overdue for an updated one of those. Oh, I love the longhorn beetles. I did produce a guide just for Minnesota for our state flower flies. So that was a fun project as well for an author. And I learned a ton just, you know, helping that author with that guide. So, but uh, Ontario has some wonderful insect authors as well. Jeff Skevington, of course, his his guide is a great guide to surfed flies for Ontario. Yep. I actually got an autographed copy of that one. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, any final thoughts? I mean, we could just go on talking about pollinators, but we do have to wrap things up. So yeah, any final advice for people who are, now interested in going out and observing these species? Yeah, I would say don't stress the details. I think people get wrapped up into things like leaving leaves and, you know, all of these things that they're being told to do. 
just start with the basics, find a native plant supplier, try to have at least a few things in bloom for spring, summer, and fall, and then just go from there. Slow down, do some observation, try the iNaturalist app because that's a way to have that feedback loop of learning about what you're seeing. And then I think, like me, you'll you'll really get hooked. You'll you'll fall down that rabbit hole, <laughs> and maybe never come out. So, a very worthwhile rabbit hole to fall into. And while burrowing into the rabbit hole, you might find some bumblebees, perhaps. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Heather. First of all, for all of your wonderful contributions to the world of pollinators, native plants, all the books you've published, and hopefully will continue to publish and for taking some time today after having been outside observing pollinators in your patch. Thank you, Ian. It was a pleasure. After waiting for a few minutes, the bee reemerges and you snap some pictures. With these images in hand, you consult your new pocket guide to common native bees and eventually find a match. Your ground nesters are coneflower mining bees which happen to specialize on black-eyed Susans. Well, 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 isn't nature fun? Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. Sometimes it's, yeah, it's amazingly accurate. <laughs> and then other times it's like, whoa, where did the AI go with that one? <laughs> we're, we're into the a completely different insect order. <laughs> yeah. So it sometimes will depend on the quality of the picture.